Jonah chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, and it might be, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, if Jonah had been alive today and had come back to the United States after his Middle East preaching journey, he would have come back to a celebrity's welcome. Christianity Today would have been calling him up for an interview. He might have even made the front cover of Christianity Today. Uh, Some of the major uh, Christian booksellers would have uh, offered him book deals. Um, He would have gotten to go on the speaking circuit. Maybe he would have gotten a a professorship in missions at one of our uh, Christian colleges or universities. And then he could start one of his own ministries. He could call it Jonah Ministries Incorporated or Nineveh Ministries Incorporated. Um, And he would have been quite a celebrity in our circles. He actually could have been quite a hero in his own circles if he had gone back to Samaria, the capital of Israel, after going to that, that enemy city, to Nineveh, and preaching the greatest revival that we have recorded in all of the Old Testament. But it didn't happen that way because he was angry. He was exceedingly angry at the success of his ministry. This is remarkable. He's just preached what may be the the most powerful sermon in terms of its immediate impact that we have recorded in all of Scripture, and he's angry about it. Now, we need to try to figure out what's going on here, and Jonah finally tells us what's going on here in his own heart. Up to this point, we we have been guessing about why Jonah wanted to flee from the Lord in the first place. Because he didn't really say in chapter 1 what he was up to. But now he finally says, this is why I fled in chapter 1. 
And we also answer when we find out why he fled in chapter 1, we also find out why he's so angry in chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 could be read a couple of different ways. It could be read chronologically. Uh, just plowing through verses 1 to 10 uh, and to, or 1 to 11 and taking them chronologically in order. But I think perhaps a better way to read it might be looking at verses 1 to 4 as, uh, as the conclusion, uh, historically speaking, and then 5 to 11 as a flashback. Why do I say that? Because in 1 to 4, Jonah is already aware and he's sure of the fact that God is going to spare Nineveh. But if you look at verses 5 to 11, he's waiting to see what God would do with Nineveh. Now, that may not be the right way to read it, but I think, I think we could look at verses 5 to 11 and translate them by saying, Jonah had gone out to the city. It's kind of a flashback to what happened before this final conversation between God and Jonah in verses 1 to 4. However that may be, we're just going to take them in order, but I think you'll see there's a certainty in the first verses that he knew that God was going to spare Nineveh. And then in verses 5 to 11, he's trying to figure out exactly what God is going to do with Nineveh. But now let's get back to the question. Why, why did Jonah try to flee in the first place? It says in verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? Look at the last verse of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, that is the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry because the Lord did not bring disaster on Nineveh. And then in verse 2, we have his explanation. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why, here's the explanation, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is an amazing admission here on Jonah's part. He says, I fled because I, I suspect it. I already know how you are. I know what kind of a God you are. I know you're a gracious God. I know you're a compassionate God. I know you're a pitying God. I know you're a merciful God. I know that you do relent from being, bringing disaster on people who deserve to be destroyed. I knew you were like that. And that's why I fled. So let's fill in the blanks. What's he saying? He's saying, I knew you were like that, and I suspected that you were sending me to Nineveh so that you could relent of bringing disaster on these people. And I wanted no part of it. If you want to do that, that's your business. I know you're like that, he's saying, but I didn't want to participate in that. So, so great was his hatred for the people of Nineveh that he could not stand for God to have mercy on those people. Now, this confession that he makes is remarkable because basically he quotes Scripture in his confession. And he is very orthodox here. And he almost quotes what's something like a creed in Israel. If you go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this became a creed of of sorts, a kind of a statement of faith throughout the Old Testament. And you'll find this in a number of places. We actually read it in a couple of other places throughout our service today. And it says this in Exodus 34, The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
And, and Jonah almost quotes that. He said, I knew this. I knew this. And every Israelite would have known this. They would have recited this. They would have heard this. And he says, I knew you were like that. That's why I ran. Because I know you're a gracious God. And I wanted no part of you showing mercy to those people of Nineveh. And he was so angry that God spared them. He said it was better for him to die. Imagine that kind of antipathy, that kind of hatred for a people, that it was better for him to die than to see the Ninevites spared of the disaster that was coming upon them. Um, Before we judge Jonah too harshly, we need to remember again the relationship between the Israelites and the Ninevites. We, we might wonder how we would react if God sent us to preach to Al-Qaeda or maybe to IS, particularly if they had killed somebody in one of their terrorist attacks that was near and dear to us, maybe a relative or maybe a friend. And then God had said, I want you to preach to them and I want you to preach their destruction. We might have said, okay, good. The destruction part I like. And then we go and preach and then he spares them. Spares the ones who did 9-11. Spares the one who did these terrorist attacks around the world. You, you, I'm just trying to, to, for us to understand, it might have been that Jonah had friends and relatives that had been killed by the Ninevites. These were the enemies of, of Israel that eventually overran and destroyed Israel in later generations. So, before we judge him too harshly, we need to realize how Deep was this animosity between these two peoples. But then God has a question for him, and it's a question he asks throughout this chapter. And he says this in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? And we need to read between the lines here. We might want to read it this way. Do you, of all people, have a right to be angry? And what's God pointing out here? God is pointing out to Jonah his own experience. He's reminding Jonah of what God had done for him. And he's saying, do you, Jonah, have any right to be angry? Do you, Jonah, have any right to wish destruction on the rebels? Jonah, remember what just happened to you. And if you haven't been here, what happened to him was, fled from the Lord, chapter 1, thrown overboard from the boat on which he was trying to flee, a certain death, and then God appointed a fish to save him. And then he was in that fish three days, three nights. He was reflecting, he was praying, and he came to himself and came to understand that God was going to be merciful to him and spare him, even though he recognized that he deserved the death penalty. And then he was vomited out on the land by this fish, given a new commission to go to Nineveh. So... God's saying to him, Jonah, Jonah, don't you get this? Don't you see how I have treated you when you deserve destruction, when you deserve death? And do you of all people have a right to be angry that I would be merciful to somebody else just like I was merciful to you? That's the first argument. And that's a good question for us as well. If we have received God's mercy, and if I would ask for a show of hands, anybody here receive God's mercy? Anybody here receive God's grace? Anybody here receive God's favor that you didn't deserve? Anybody here brought back from destruction? Self-destruction? And then the question is us, should we 
Is there any way that we should resent the fact that God would be merciful to others? I've actually seen this. As you know, I was in Mexico for 24 years, and our last uh, 20 were in Guadalajara, and we were starting churches. And so we started a church, and that church started some churches. And one of those churches, it was an amazing situation. It was in a, a pueblo, a town, an ancient town, where kind of everybody was related to a few different clans. And there were some of these family feuds that existed in this ancient town. And uh, everybody knew who was on which side. Well, in this church that we started there, uh, this lady became a Christian. And she joined the church. And it was wonderful. God had mercy on her and forgave her and restored her. And she was so happy to be in the church. Until God did the same thing with somebody of the other clan. And she was not happy. She didn't want that other woman in the church. That actually happened in two of our church plants. In another church, there were a couple of women who were in the neighborhood who had actually gotten in a fist fight. And one of them came into the church. And then the other one started getting interested in being in the church. Interesting situation. And by God's grace, they were able to work this out and see, wow, if God has had mercy on me, then I too should have mercy on her. But we've asked the question before, is there somebody you'd rather not be here? Is there somebody, if that person, he or she, walked into our church, you would be uncomfortable? Or maybe is there some group of people that you'd kind of rather us not reach out to? That you'd be uncomfortable if they actually started coming into our church? You see, we need to ask that same question. Do we have any right to withhold God's mercy from somebody else if we ourselves have received such great mercy from Him? That's, that's the first question. And then, going to the verses 5 to 11, if indeed this is a flashback, this records what Jonah did immediately after preaching in Jonah, in Nineveh. Do you remember that it said it was a three days journey, and we didn't know quite what that meant, but maybe three days to get around it? But Jonah preached one day, and this spontaneous revival broke out. People were, were confessing their sins and they were, they were dressing themselves in rough clothing and fasting and the king got in it and the animals got in it and it was this, this universal repentance. And Jonah just got to preach that one day apparently and it looks like just after that one day, after preaching, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, it looks like what he did then was go to the east side of the city. He entered from the west, preached through it one day, went out to the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. Now, it's a rugged land there. There is not much from which to make a booth, but it looks like he found some rocks, maybe some brush, maybe a little few sticks, maybe some sand piled up, but he made some sort of a lean-to, some sort of a covering for himself. And he tried to make himself as safe and comfortable because this was going to be something of a long wait. He said, within 40 days you'll be destroyed. So we don't know how long he had to wait. He may have been there for these 40 days until he saw that God wasn't going to destroy Nineveh. But he wanted a front row seat. He wanted a front row seat when when whatever destruction came from the Lord upon these people. Now, in building this little lean-to, one of the hardest parts to build, I don't know if you've ever tried to build, we used to build these uh, in the lot next door to our house, try to build a little fort for our girls. And uh, the hardest part is the roof. You know, we could build the booby traps and we could build the trench and we could build some walls, but the hardest part is to get a roof. But what we find is that God appointed. Now that's the uh, the first time we saw that appointed. We saw that back at the end of chapter 1 where God appointed 
a fish. And now we find for the second, for the third, and for the fourth time, the same verb, God appointed. And so, in verses uh, 6 to 8, we find him appointing three things. The first thing, what was the first thing he appointed? Verse 6. He appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Excellent. He's got his lean-to, he's got his little hut, whatever it might have been. Now he has a green roof over it. And it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed what? A worm. So we got a fish, and then we have a plant, and now we have God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And now one more thing, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed what? A hot wind, a scorching east wind. And it says the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. Actually, it's the same verb as in verse 7. It says the worm attacked the plant. And then it says that the sun attacked Jonah's head. We know how that feels, don't we? Okay, so God appointed fish. Then he appointed plant. Then he appointed worm. Then he appointed a wind. And the sun attacked the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And once again, he asked that he could die rather than live. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. And Jonah, God has a question for him again. God said to Jonah, same question, do you do well to be angry? And now he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Um, What he does here is he uses this plant as an object lesson for Jonah. And Jonah, of course, he was certain that he was right. Certain that he was right. And this is a good question, by the way, whenever we're angry. Whenever we're angry about anything, it's a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Do you do well to be angry? Do you have any right to be angry? Is there any good reason for you to be angry? But he asked that to Jonah about the plant. And then he uses it in, as, a, as an object lesson. But Jonah was certain. What do you say? I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And here's the object lesson. He compared the plant to Nineveh. And he compared himself, God, to Jonah. And he says, Jonah, you did nothing for this plant. You have nothing invested in this plant. You didn't plant this plant. You didn't cause this plant to grow. You didn't water this plant. You did nothing, nothing invested in this plant. But by contrast, God had much invested in Nineveh. He had invested what in Nineveh? There were 120,000 persons in Nineveh. And what are persons, by the way, according to the Bible? Persons from whatever tribe or tongue. Persons are God's image. God was very invested in Nineveh. He had 120 images of Himself in that city. And He said, Jonah, you, in addition, should take into effect the account that these 120,000 are ignorant people. Now, there are different ways to read this, and some have suggested that this 120,000 were those who didn't know their right hand from their left. Those were children. And, uh, but that, that makes the numbers probably too big for the city of that time. It's probably just an expression to say they really didn't know what was going on in life. They didn't know left from right. They were ignorant. In particular, they were ignorant of God. And then he, he takes a step down. And he says, Jonah, if you, if you can't even worry about those, those persons, those images of God, what about the cattle? 
a strange sort of question with which to end this. But it looks like God is, is going from greater to lesser and He's saying, Jonah, compare these things. You are worried about what? You're all upset about a plant. A plant in which you have nothing invested. And you haven't taken into account people, human beings, images of God. And if you can't even, if you can't do that, what about the cows? If you can't stir up compassion for people, at least put into, into comparison a plant and much cattle. And in the, the scheme of things, which is more valuable? You see, in addition to the first argument, what's the first argument? The first argument is, Jonah, I had compassion on you. I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you have compassion on others? And the second argument is this. It's a comparison of value. If you can place so much value on something that is relatively valueless, why can't you put more value on that which is truly valuable? You know, Jonah may look kind of silly to us, but we're able to get our values out of whack as well, aren't we? It's interesting that in our day, those who sometimes are most anxious to protect trees, also are in favor of abortion. It seems like there's something out of whack there. And and I'm all in favor of protecting trees. But if we put a child and a tree in the balance, we find that no, a child is, is much more valuable image of God. But let's get maybe closer to home. Can you conceive of a husband yelling at his wife because she came home with a nick on the door of the new car? So, concerned about paint and metal more than a wife? Or, can you imagine a mom screaming at her kids because they just tracked dirt onto the clean floor? You mean, concerned about carpet and tile more than children? Or friends separating over a business deal. Really? Business more important than friendship? Or perhaps couples divorcing over money. Money more important than marriage? Or siblings separating forever over an inheritance because each thought that he or she didn't get enough. Really? An inheritance, things more important than family? You see, it's easy to get out of whack, isn't it? It's easy to get our values out of whack and have, have compassion and interest and investment in things that are, that are passing and have less value and compassion for those things that are eternal, those relationships that God has given us. So in order to get our values in order... Let's try to sum up Jonah, chapter by chapter, and let's try to put together the lessons that God has given us here. Chapter 1, what's the lesson for us? You can't outrun God, and that's a good thing. There's nowhere where you can go that is beyond the reach of His compassion and His mercy. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, rescue comes from the Lord for those who are destined to destruction because of their rebellion. And that rescue comes to those who call upon the Lord to rescue them. Now, in the New Testament, it becomes clear that the rescuer is Jesus, that the one who comes to 
buy us back, to redeem us, to ransom us, is the one who paid the price for our sins by His death on the cross and then broke the the bounds of death by rising from the dead. And so the lesson of chapter 2, as Jonah summed it up, salvation, rescue, redemption comes from the Lord as we call upon Him to rescue us. Chapter 3, God has compassion even on those people. Those people out there. Those people we don't like. And He shows His compassion not by overlooking sin, but by leading them and us to turn from our sins to Him. Now chapter 4, what's the lesson of chapter 4? And this becomes really the lesson of the book. The lesson of chapter 4 is, we should have compassion on those people too. Because if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are just like those people out there. Paul summed up aptly the message of Jonah when he said this in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for reminding us of Your compassion, love that's never failing, and the mercy that has fallen on us, that You are a gracious God, that You forgive sins, that You don't hold us guilty forever because You held Christ guilty in our place. And we thank You that salvation comes from You. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would have that salvation as we call upon Jesus in faith. And we pray, O God, that having received compassion, that we would give compassion. And that we would have compassion on those people we don't like. On those people that are different from us. On those people who irritate us or confuse us or frighten us. And that you would help us to see that we are just like those people. Have mercy on us, O God, that we might have mercy on all. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.